Okay. The thief on the cross, as he is commonly known. I couldn't go with the criminal on the cross. It just sort of was too clunky, even though Luke doesn't know he's a thief. Um, Any questions or thoughts from this morning? And do we have volunteers to do the mics? Jamie, you want to do a mic? All right. But once the dam breaks, the hands just keep coming up. There's Mike. I'm going to turn it on the bottom. And just pass it to the people who need it. Perfect. Sarah. So you said that um, when Jesus died for those three days, he was in heaven? Um, yes. Why do so many people have... Uh, why do so many people argue about that? Because of First Peter. Great question. Well, A, the Apostles' Creed, some versions of it have descended and went into hell. So an early church creed has that. I do believe at some point after his death, Jesus did go to hell, not to suffer. Go to First Peter 4, I believe. Where's Mitchell? There's three. Thank you, Mitchell. See, I'm just now going to be looking at Mitchell as my, my proof texter for verses. First um, Peter 3. Um, okay. It's a bit about Noah. That's where it is, right? Yeah. Um, verse, Mitchell, help me out. Where's it at? 18. Okay. okay. Um, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. So, that is the text that talk about Jesus going and doing something to spirits enchained in prison. I do believe um, these spirits are in hell or something like hell. What I mean by something like hell is technically people don't go to hell till after the lake of fire is poured into it, death and Hades are poured into it. But the, the, the place of suffering where people currently are. Um, so uh, Jesus, wherever the rich man is, and rich man of Lazarus, right? And these are spirits who I believe, I'll make this even more problematic, I believe they're the ones from Genesis 6. That's my best guess. Um, there are, we know from the demons, right? The demons, when they see Jesus, are you here to send us to the place before the appointed time? I think there's a precedent for that. There are some demons who are sent to the place of punishment before the rest of them are going to get there because they did something particularly wicked. I think it's what Genesis 6 is talking about. I don't want to get totally sidetracked on that. So Jesus went there in the spirit, alive in the spirit, and made proclamation to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. So what's going on here? Well, the word proclamation is simply to herald. It's not the word gospelize. Some people from this have tried to draw the belief that even those people in hell will still have a chance to believe the gospel. There's a verbal form of, of proclaim, which basically you could translate gospelize. That's not what this is. This is herald, Russo. Here's my guess. Jesus' victory needs to be absolute. And for Jesus' victory over death and the devil to be absolute, there can't be any people on the other side who think they might be winning. Right? So I think Lord Jesus, triumphant, crowned, 
king, given the name above all names, goes into hell to announce to those demons, you guys lost, lest they languish in hell under the false hope that maybe our side's winning. That's my guess. I couldn't die on that hill, but it seems fitting to me. But whatever Jesus is doing, he's not going there to suffer. He's going there to preach, proclaim, announce something. So there's not an, an inkling of note that Jesus is there f- continuing suffering. When he says it's finished on the cross, it is finished. Um, but that's where that belief comes from, Sarah, as, uh, textually. Are there any other texts that, w- that people point to, or is this the primary one for Jesus going to hell? Um, where, where? Where are you talking about? Redeemed from Psalm 49. Let me check out Psalm 49. Let's check it out, Scott. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Although Sheol isn't necessarily hell. Sheol is the realm of the dead. It can be the good realm of the dead or the bad realm of the dead. It's just the realm of death. Uh, okay. It, no, it could be interpreted by some as hell. Um, I, I would not be one of those. I think Sheol is a general term for the place where dead people go, and it would be covering as an umbrella category both the good portion, Abraham's bosom, what Jesus calls that, and the place of torment. And Well, the thief on the cross kind of destroys purgatory. I mean, there's no way, even though this guy's bold for a few minutes and hours, there's no way he's outdoing his entire life of bad works in that short amount of time. Um, and yet today, not in a couple million years after you work it off in purgatory, you'll be with me in paradise. But today. Okay, Psalm 49. Yeah, 15. Um, verse 14 and 15. Like sheep... Okay, let's go back to 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And that's, that's one of the reasons right there. There's no indication of what size, just the realm of death. Death. Sheol is the death place. You know, I think. That's my understanding. Um, although you're right, it is something people disagree on. Um, death shall be their shepherd. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So from that, it's argued Jesus went to hell? Oh, and led a captive host, Ephesians. That's possible too. It's also possible, yeah, let's go to Ephesians 4. That Jesus went to the happy side of Sheol and brought those people with him um, now that the price had been paid into into heaven. I think Ephesians talks about this as well. Um, but none of this is Jesus suffering, bearing wrath, or anything like that in, in hell. So Ephesians 4, Mitchell? 4, 8. All right. Okay, Ephesians 4, 8. Um, actually, we had to go back a little further than 4, 8, but yeah. Um, Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he descended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. 
He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave. So Jesus, in triumphal train, goes down and empties out Abraham's bosom, as he calls it, and brings with him those people into now the newly opened paradise. That's my best. I mean, this is complicated stuff, but that's my best understanding. Anyone want to weigh in? Trinity wants to weigh in. Or Trinity has a question. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. There's like six people that listen to this, and they want to hear what you have to say. Awesome. So Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So then, like, if that is true, then why would anybody ever confuse, like, people going to heaven for death? Because in the Old Testament, and this is mostly something that shows up in the Old Testament, there's a developing awareness of the afterlife. Um, So sometimes they'll just simply speak of the realm of the dead in general, and other times it becomes clear. Job knows there's a resurrection. I don't know how Job knew that. Um, He says, though my flesh and my body rot away, yet with my eyes I shall see God. Um, But if you read through the Psalms, you get David saying things like, Oh, Lord, do not let me go down to the dust. Will those in Sheol praise you? And you get confused, like, okay, David, what's going on? Part of it is they simply speak of two realms. There's the realm of the living, there's the realm of the dead. Um, We have a lot more clarity as Scripture moves on, so certainly we know better than that. But at the earlier stages, as God's progressively revealing truth, um, it's, it's not as clear that they had as full of an understanding of that. That's, that's, that's my best. Go. Okay, so then like part two of the question. Yes. Sorry. Oh, no, um, no, no. Then when we get into the New Testament in Luke, it says, and you actually said this in your sermon, I think, um, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Yes. So then is that still talking about the dead of the people who are living an eternal life, or is that the dead from people in hell? Sorry, so can, can you, I'm not sure I understand your question. Can you oh, again? okay. Sorry. No, no. So um, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Yes. Oh, 24, chapter 24, yes. Yeah. Um, so then why, how would that be he's coming from heaven, like you talked about in your sermon oh sure sure jesus dies and and the reason i believe why he isn't raised immediately but after three days is in part to make it clear he was really dead um he's not doing any more saving work he's not suffering any further over those three days he says on the cross it is finished and so i i would say based on his statement to the thief that in the intervening three days he's in paradise he's he's no longer humbled or suffering He's raised on the third day to vindicate his claims for who he says he was. He said he was sinless. The resurrection proves that. The resurrection is God saying yes to Jesus. The resurrection is God publicly vindicating him. So Jesus rises from the dead. But the question is, where was Jesus during those three days? Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. When he goes to make proclamation, the spirits in prison, when he goes and leads host of captives free, I don't know exactly when in that time frame that happens, but he's at least in paradise for a part of that day, because that's what he says to the priest. He's certainly not suffering in hell, is the main point I'm trying to get at. That's um, a common enough view, but it's not one that I think can be supported biblically. And that, is that getting where you're getting at, or am I not answering your question? Okay. I was just going to say, 
Oh, no, no. And this is confusing because what you basically get is heaven's waiting room and hell's waiting room, for lack of a better term. And then it looks as though from Ephesians 4, at the resurrection, heaven's waiting room empties out into heaven. And at the second resurrection, hell's waiting room empties out into hell. That's where in Revelation 21, death and Hades are emptied out into hell. Um, So, yes, Greg. Well, I wonder if part of the confusion, it says he suffered. Uh, the, I mean, I think we recognize that he suffered on the cross. Yes. Not in hell. Right. So that, that could be where some people are, gotcha. are, are, are interpreting the suffered as he spent time in, in hell. Right. Now, that, that, that could be. That could be where they get that from. I, not holding that view, I'm, I'm, I don't want to straw man it, make it too weak, but I... I these are the only texts I'd point to that someone could even try to, oh, Ron's going to fill us in. Well, I wanted to address what you had mentioned earlier about the thief on the cross and that, that kind of um, takes away the Catholic view of purgatory. How the Catholics address that is the thief was granted all his sins forgiven through Jesus on the cross. And so Catholics, how they react to that is they have the sacrament of last rites. So if you go to the sacraments of last rites and go through that process right before you die, then you get a free pass to out of heaven. Purgatory? Out of purgatory, wow. right. So that's why it's import- it was always important when okay. I was a Catholic to be near a church. <laughs> no, and that's why faithful, I mean, I mean my faithful, consistent Catholic priests will be z- zipping to the hospital when they catch news that somebody's going downhill fast. Well, so a lot of houses, a lot of Catholics, for example... We had an actual um, last rites kit or whatever um, to get out of hell free kit, lack of a better term, that um, if a priest came and they didn't have all the necessary ingredients to perform the sacrament, that we had that oh. in our house. A lot of Catholics wow. still do. Pretty soon you can do it by Skype, I'm sure, like the doctor visits. Yeah. Now they could do, maybe Skype it, yeah. Anyway, anyway, sorry. If you can do a medical visit and get prescriptions given to you via Skype, it just seems like the next logical step. Um, okay? And I'll, uh, and I'll answer one other thing. Some of the people that want to insist baptism is necessary for salvation, their answer to the thief is Jesus isn't dead yet. And so this is still Old Covenant is what they'd argue. They would argue the thief doesn't count because he's Old Covenant. Once Jesus dies, we're into the New Covenant. He's purchasing the New Covenant with his blood, and it's his death that seals the deal. So this thief is squeaking in under the Old Covenant, and they'd probably say he is circumcised. So that was probably what they'd answer for that. I don't think it's a terribly compelling argument, but that is the rationale that would be used. Um, Okay, other thoughts or questions? Who? Eh? So your point about hell being worse than anything we do on earth or have on earth. Yes. Uh, very nice reality check. Thank you for that. Uh, Ra- how, rally check? Uh, reality check. Oh, sorry. Reality, reality check. check. <clears throat> sorry. It, was, it was great. 
It's like, is that um, something cool kids say? Rally check? I'm like, no, no. Okay. Um, how do you, when someone's in that suffering, uh, just in present moment, how do you encourage someone, but also still remind them that there are worse afflictions in hell? I, I think that as long as we're suffering, here's the difference, right? Um, and that's a fantastic question. If our, if we're suffering like children, like I, I use the example, he's, Abner's not here. If Abner going to the dentist and he's got to get a shot and he's scared. And I'm not like, suck it up, man up. I'm just, you know. As long as the suffering is just, dad, it hurts. Everything in the Bible I see shows a father who comforts and loves his children. It's only when self-righteousness and self-entitlement come around it. Why does this happen to me? That's where it starts rounding a corner. Where Now Job fully rounds that corner eventually. He starts suffering very well. And towards the end, as his friends, quote-unquote, press him, Job, we really think you did something bad. You must have done something bad. God wouldn't let this happen to you unless you... Eventually, Job starts to say, yeah, in fact, I, I kind of wish I could take God to court. And then God shows up, and Job doesn't think that anymore. Um, <laughs> so that's, that's the corner you've got to watch out for, is going around that corner. As long as you don't go around that corner into, yeah, God, you've got some explaining to do, and you're just suffering in this... like. Read the Psalms. Read, we weep with those who weep. You know, Jesus still wept in front of Lazarus's tomb, even though he knew he was going to raise him a few moments later. So, it's the answer isn't in light of the glory in front of you. Can't you just deal with this? That is not the counsel we give. We only bring out the notion of you deserve worse when people start to raise their fist in self righteous indignation, and and so that's where you've got to gently say to someone, <laughs> he's. Well, what is molded? Say, speak back to the molder. Will you really talk back to God? Um, but we comfort and we weep. Their suffering is real suffering. Even suffering that's brought on by one's own self. This is where people can sometimes wrestle. Someone does something stupid and they're suffering. It's still real suffering. And we don't have to validate what they did. You know, um, somebody you know, gets drunk and crashes their car. Somebody's marriage blows up because they have an affair. You know, and they're suffering, the result of this. We don't need to approve what they did to still sympathize with, you're in real suffering. This is really ugly. This is really painful. Um, Ted Tripp has a very, no, Paul Tripp, sorry. Paul Tripp's instruments in the dealer's hand, redeemer's hand. That's his, one of his first points. We've got to enter into their suffering with them um, in, in a, like Jesus did. Jesus enters into our own. So I can look at someone, even if they've completely done it to themselves, and say, man, that's just got to be awful. I'm so sorry. When they start to say, yeah, and why would this happen to me? You've got to gently try to redirect them. One of the reasons why I try to hit this reality check now is it's way better for us to learn this lesson when we're not in the middle of a whirlwind than when we are, right? I mean, somebody just lost a husband and wife. Someone just got the news that they have cancer. And then to be like, oh, by the way, God doesn't owe you anything in this life. Um, he doesn't. Is, it's going to be a hard news to bear, so it's better for us to hear that when we're not in the middle of the whirlwind. And I know some of you may be in the whirlwind right now. But we, we weep with them, we pray with them, we encourage them. And God, somehow, even though he ordains these things, is really grieving and weeping with us in it. In a way that I don't comprehend, but I believe is fully true. Jesus is weeping in front of Lazarus' tomb. Jesus let Lazarus die. I mean, the text, the same chapter makes that point. When Jesus heard this, he waited three days. Jesus weeps in front of Lazarus' tomb. And John, knowing that we're going to see the disjunct, 
has not once but twice. Each of Lazarus' sister bring that point up to Jesus. If you had come quicker, he wouldn't have died. So it's not like John messed like, oops, he's, John didn't see that one coming. He said, that's the exact point. Um, yeah, Jesus, let, Jesus allowed this to happen. And Jesus is still weeping about the thing he allowed to happen. Um, and so we can, we can weep with people even though God is sovereign. And we don't... We just need to... Res- I'm going on and on and on and on. We need to resist the urge. And we need to help others resist the urge to, to go to the it's not fair, why me thing. And just, just pour out your heart and weep. Pour out your heart and this hurts and this is painful and this is scary. You're fine. You're good. It's only when we start rounding the corner to, yeah, but, that we need to watch out. That's, do you want, is that scratching where you're itching or? Okay, I feel like I was babbling there towards the end a bit. But, okay, next question. Mitchell, and then Ron. Okay. In John 11, was Jesus weeping because he loved Lazarus, or was he weeping because of the unbelief that he saw? Oh, I knew you were going to go there. (laughs) We can talk more about this later. The narrator, John the narrator, points us to the people, look how he loved him. That's where I'm going. I, I think that's what they say. Look how, they lo- look how this man loved him. The nearest people to Jesus, and John wants us to know the nearest people to Jesus interpreted it that way. I, I think death is horrible. I think death is awful, and Jesus agrees. So what do you think about the footnote in the ESV in 1133? <laughs> when, when, okay. Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, and the footnote says, or was indignant. I'm fine with indignant. Death, I... I, Does indignant not fit better with the interpretation that he was weeping because of their unbelief? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think indignant can work just as well as, like, I'm indignant at death. I just came from a funeral yesterday, and Serena's grandmother died, and there's a part of it that's indignant about that. Like, this is not fitting. This is not the way things should be. This is, this is wrong. Death's an intruder. This is, death is scandalous. I'm, 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 I think that's entirely fitting. I mean, and God and Jesus agree to such an extent that Jesus comes and dies so that death will be made no more. But no, I, I don't see um, the text pointing us towards that reading. We can, we can talk more about it later, but... I'm just trying to get my, when I, last time I taught through John 11, I considered that option. I think all the narrator clues, what the narrator points to, point us simply towards Jesus is weeping at the death of his friend, because death is awful, full stop. And Jesus allowed this to happen, intended to happen for the glory of God. You know what I mean? Um, but besides, it's only one of them who, who has full unbelief, right? Because one of the sisters has that little, what did, what did, uh, Oh man, remember when, um, oh wow, who's the gentleman who would recite large passages? Jason Nightingale. Remember when Jason Nightingale did John, he talked about the Coppola. But I know that even now you can, she has this Coppola of faith. I think that's the term he used. Mom, Coppola? Grammar question, Mom. 
Oh, she doesn't know. Okay. Um, but we can, we'll talk more about that later. But I, 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 I know that some people think that, but that's not where I go. Michael Carr thinks that. Uh, okay. Anybody? Oh, Ron has been patiently waiting. Thank you, Ron. Um, getting back to your comment about pain, how for me, for example, how I view my constant pain that I have in my neck, um, I view that as a reminder that uh, it could have been worse 42 years ago had I not had that pain, had I died, I'd have gone straight to hell. And so it's a reminder for me of God's grace allowing me to be um, on this earth till I was able to get saved. Mm. Well, and go to, go to 2 Corinthians. Paul, pain and suffering for the believer, for the unbeliever, it's watch out for the wrath to come. I think for the believer, it can serve to remind us we live in a fallen world and we participate to the fallen world's sinfulness. But it also is, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, something that causes us to know God and Christ better. And so he actually starts boasting in his suffering and his weakness, um, which is rather strange. So Paul, our small group's going through 2 Corinthians. Paul hates defending himself, but he has to defend himself because his gospel message is attached to his apostolic authority. And so he can't allow his apostolic authority to crumble lest his gospel crumble with it. But he hates defending himself. He hates it. Um, and so he uh, starts in verse 16 of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, but you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself, for, I, for you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. So these super apostles that Paul's names elsewhere, these, these super duper apostles in Corinth are saying that they're better than Paul and they point to things like Paul doesn't charge if you were really good, he'd charge. <laughs> Paul, Paul works with his hands. Paul is um, unimpressive in his appearance. His speech is shameful. He writes these powerful letters, but in his personal presence, contemptible. And so there, you know, and so Paul says, yeah, but even Satan walks around as an angel of light. So when Paul defends himself, look at how he defends himself. But what, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And what Paul's basically going to say is, if on the one hand it mattered, human values mattered, I'd have it in spades. So he starts off on that side. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like I'm... You can tell Paul hates having this is. I'm a better servant of Christ than you. I mean, that's what he has to say. But no, I am being more faithful than them, Paul has to say, and he hates doing it. I'm talking like a madman. With far, far greater labors, then he moves on to weaknesses. Far more imprisonments, 
countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I mean, it's just danger, danger, danger. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And now he's going to move on to the stuff that really bugs him. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, why on earth would Paul do that? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window. I mean, Paul's boasting. I, like a scared child, had to be let down in a basket. This is the opposite of these other super-duper apostles. I mean, imagine how undignified it has to be to be let down a wall in a basket and escape their hands. Um, I must go on boasting, though, that there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And he talks about his experience. I want to jump down even further. Um, Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. By that word, messenger in the Greek is angelos. You could translate that just as legitimately an angel from Satan or a demon. Um, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, you might think, oh, Satan's coming after Paul, but the reason for this, this, this thorn is to keep him humble. Is that Satan's goal? No. So, however this is working, this is ultimately God keeping Paul humble by sending some suffering. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So on the one hand, when you're going through suffering, there's nothing wrong with saying, ouch, please make it stop. That's okay. It's fine. Jesus said, let this cup pass. That's fine. But God's answer to me was, my grace is sufficient for you. And now we get the answer for why Paul is listing as his credentials all of his suffering and weakness. I mean, it's, an, it's an interesting resume, right? Um, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's logic is God regularly demonstrates his power by knocking the crutches out from under us, and then when we still manage to stand, his power is seen. No one is impressed when a billionaire is happy. And praises God. And no one's impressed when, the, when the, uh, the football player scores the touchdown and points up to the sky. What's impressive is when someone like Job loses everything and still worships God. That's impressive. When Job says, naked I came from the Lord, naked I returned. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're like, who is this God that is sustaining this man? That's impressive. God's power is displayed when his people still worship and praise him through suffering. 
and he comforts and he strengthens us. And so one of the things God does in suffering is causes us to fall on him and trust him. I mean, I want to naturally trust in my money. I want to naturally trust in my strength. I want to naturally trust in my ability. I want to trust in my mind. I want to trust in my health. And if any of those things start to get threatened, A, I find out how much I'm trusting in other things in God, and B, eventually I have to start trusting in God in that area. And in that way, I know him more fully than I did before, which is where Paul ultimately ends up. So that's, that's the other piece, is that for the Christian, suffering is a way for God to glorify himself in our lives and to cause us to know him better in Christ. Um, it seems as though regularly God's favorites go through some of the worst trials. So that when Paul is originally converted in Acts, go to Acts 12. 12, Mitchell? Mitchell's not here. Oh, now I'll have to figure it out myself. Is it 12? Um, where is it? There's Paul's conversion. Oh. Nine. Um, where is it? Some of now I'm looking for how much someone must suffer for my sake. And Annas basically is incredulous when the Lord sends him to go get the scales off Paul's eyes. 16, thank you. So look at this. So, so the Lord sends Ananias to go lay hands on him. Um, verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on, and he goes on. <laughs> God is going to show how satisfying and sufficient Christ is by publicly having Paul suffer and in that suffering rejoice. And that is going to be a demonstration of the sufficiency and the glory of God. Because the logic is whatever Paul has still gives him joy even when Paul is flogged. Whatever Paul has. So whatever it is that Paul has that gives him joy is powerful because you can take other things away from him and you can't take his joy. That's, that's the, the logic, um, that we demonstrate the sufficiency of God, not in our you know, Lexuses and limousines, but in joy in adversity, which is kind of the, the balancing scale. So Paul can talk about outwardly perishing, inwardly renewed. So there's great joy in the faith, but that tends to be the, the, the math that God uses with his people. Not always. There are rich Christians, to be sure, um, not many noble, not many wise, not many esteemed, right? Um, okay. Well, not a question, but um, and a comment. In uh, Philippians 3, 9, down through, uh, say, 15, Paul is um, showing us that even though the suffering that he's going through and the things mm. that he's facing, um, he's not talking about self-righteousness. He's not talking about the good that he's done, but mm. he's talking about not, uh, not having his own righteousness of saying, 
you know, I should, because I'm a Christian, certain things shouldn't happen to me or, mm. you know, uh, the health and wealth gospel that we hear on television, mm. which is one of the worst things you could listen to because as Amen. a believer, when I've heard that, I've always, you know, when you struggle with certain things and, you know, things aren't going financially the way you want them to go and somebody says, well, if you really believe God, you would be able to command and demand the things that you want. And then you pray and you humble yourself before the Lord and the Lord continues you to allow you to go through that. And you see this guy on television and he's like, he has no problems. What's wrong with my faith? Why am I not experiencing what he's experiencing? It's because it's a false faith that he's presenting to you. Mm. And Paul, you know, gives it to us writ large that, you know, not being found, not having my own righteousness. And in 11 where he says, uh, by any means, I might obtain to the resurrection of Christ. So, you know, I think when we look at that, it just shows us that um, what Paul is our example when we look at mm. suffering and being a believer. While, while we're in Philippians 2, go back to 129. Here's something you don't often hear in evangelism. For it has been granted, literally gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's, I mean, it's, it's the upside-down kingdom, but that's the way Paul's looking at it. Like, it's a privilege to get to suffer for the sake of Christ. If you read early church history, um, in our men's group, there's a, if you're looking, you probably aren't looking for anything to read in early church history, but if you are and you want something digestible, but that's not so watered down that it's like a coloring book, Usto Gonzalez has a two-volume work, The Story of Christianity, Part 1, Part 2. It's very readable. I recommend it. But what you learn in, and it's on Audible, what you learn is that the early church um, thought martyrdom was the highest possible calling. They also thought that if you were presumptuous and put yourself up for it unnecessarily, the Lord would forsake you and you wouldn't be able to stand. But they, they believed if the Lord calls you to true martyrdom, he would, you would, you would, they called them confessors. In fact, the, the earliest um, origin of the saints notion in, in Catholic theology and relics and stuff was what they would do, a quite good practice. They would gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and if, they, if it was the date commemorating someone's death, martyrdom, they confessed, they were faithful to the end. Let's, let's go to the spot where George was martyred. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper there, eh? You know, let's, let's thank the Lord for George's faithfulness unto death. Right, and then they'd do it sometimes because they had to hide in graveyards there, and so very quickly it got associated with relics and all of this stuff. But it started out as a great thing, which was how wonderful it was that George didn't recant but boldly proclaimed Christ even as they burned him alive. Right, right, yeah, yeah. But very quickly, the superstitious notion of locations and places and bones and relics got thrown in. But what started that was simply, hey, let's go to let's go to wherever George is buried and celebrate communion there in remembrance of George. That's cool. It very quickly took on like this is a stone from the headstone of George's grave, and it contains special. You know, it very quickly becomes that, which is nonsense. But. But yeah, Paul can speak to the Philippians like, you've been blessed. God has given you not only the gift of faith, but he's given you to suffer for his sake. It's just not how we look at things. Um, and in the passage you talked about, he talks about also, um, where is it? No, it's three, Philippians three. Um, yeah. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
This is what Paul wants. I think we all agree that I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings. <laughs> but Paul wanted to share with Christ in his sufferings. Um, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, um, Lee, Mike, Mike for Lee. Well, and when you're saying uh, like being like him in his sufferings, it, and I, I don't, it's easy to think, wow, does that mean I'm going to be like whipped and pierced and all this other stuff? And and no, it isn't. It's it's like him in his attitude yeah. that he was willing to do it out of love and grace and mercy, and he didn't complain. And then that's where it comes in for us, <laughs> doing all the what we would call suffering, like oh, I missed a night's sleep, or I, or I, you know, I have to go, whatever, have something done at the doctor. It's just it was how. What is my attitude when I'm doing that? Am I going to be miserable and let everybody know I'm miserable, or am I going to just do it gracefully like Christ did? No, ab- absolutely. The New Testament again and again and again assumes and equips Christians for suffering over. Two-thirds of the Psalms contain lament or are lament. I want to close. We've got five minutes. Go to 1 Peter 2. Um, and again, I know this going to be a downer. Uh, but Paul insists that there's great joy in and through suffering. And, and God, don't go looking for it. Christians aren't masochists. Um, don't, don't go looking for it. But expect it. And if it doesn't come, be surprised. And Okay, cool. Um, but Peter says this. He, he uh, talks about suffering unjustly. And he deals with servants or slaves in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, literally with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let's pause again. This is a gracious thing. And notice how he's broadened this out from just servants to anyone. He's applying a general principle to a specific case. It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one or anyone endures sorrows or suffering unjustly. Now that's the exact opposite of the don't tread on me ethic. Isn't it? Mess with the bull, you get the horns. It's a gracious thing to God when people endure sorrows or suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? The irony is a lot of people I deal with, they're getting the consequences of their own actions and they're not enduring. Peter's just saying like, that's just, that's the floor, man. <laughs> that's, that's to be assumed. Um, that's the, the thief on the cross. We deserve this. I mean, he's not complaining about being crucified. What credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, and what's the antecedent of this? What's the this he's talking about? Unjust suffering. Or maybe you want to fill it in, graciously enduring unjust suffering, persevering in unjust suffering. For to this, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. This gets back to your point, Lee, about sharing Christ's sufferings. Yes, you too get to not open your mouth, and you too get to trust God, and you too get to turn the other cheek. Yes, you get to share. I get to share, right? He can, so to this you have been called, 
Because Christ also suffered. So he's just speaking to all Christians generally, not just some Christians. All Christians. You've been called to patiently endure unjust suffering. Because Christ gave you an example. That word for example in the Greek is a hoopogrammon. Um, and it's the tool the children would trace their letters around. We've got those, those sheets that have all the letters and the kid puts the pencil in. Christ's life, we're supposed to be tracing our life around, to use a crude example. Um, that's, that's the metaphor being used. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he's going to argue from the greater to the lesser. If it's true in the extreme greater case, how much more true is it true in the lesser case? He committed no sin. Right? And of course, we can't claim that. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he continued, when he suffered, he did not threaten. And the logic is, if the sinless one, if anyone had a right to say, this isn't fair, I don't deserve it, if he shut his mouth and endured... How much more do people like you and me who do deserve it need to follow suit? What did he do? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So it's, he didn't say, you know what, I deserve this. You know what, whatever. He simply said, there's a righteous judge who will make everything right, and I'll trust in his timetable. So you read the Psalms, and again, there is calling out for judgment. There is calling out. There are imprecatory Psalms calling for God to vindicate. But it's putting judgment in God's hands. So there's, there's something right in saying, Lord, this is wrong. Would you smash the wicked? There are Psalms that say that. I'm sorry. In God's time, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then look at what God did through that. And that's the final point I want to make. When God's people will suffer unjustly well, trusting him, what does God do with that? He redeems and he saves. Because when Jesus did that, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, I tell people suffering, and some of the hardest counseling, and this gets back to your question, is when people are just in it for the long haul. They're in a difficult marriage. And you're just telling them, just keep persevering, keep being faithful, keep trusting God. They're in a difficult walk in life. God will use such suffering redemptively. I don't know how. There are a million and one ways that could happen. Um... <laughs> Mark Sullivan talks about how his grandmother um, endured a very difficult marriage. And he, he asked her why she didn't leave her husband. And basically, I'm loving him. Jesus doesn't leave me. At, years after her death, her husband comes to faith. <laughs> right? I mean, who knows how your faithfulness, my faithfulness in entrusting the Lord will work redemptively, but it will. I mean, one of the things to try to encourage people, your, your suffering is not meaningless. It's not, God is doing good things with it. We may have, wait till the resurrection to see those good things and see what God was up to, but he absolutely is. Um, he, he, he did it when Jesus trusted him and endured unjustly, and he'll do it when we do as well. Um, so th- coming full circle to your question, how do you encourage people? God is up to good in this. God is up to good in this. Absolutely he is. And sometimes he even lets us see the good he's up to. Um, But not always. And we are at time. Thank you, and I'll see you all 
next week.